You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's episode, just a few things I wanted to go over with you guys. One, just some comments that we're getting from you guys that I wanted to share because this stuff is so, so important and we love hearing these kind of comments. And this was on our YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to that, please do it. It was a comment in reference to episode 143, Jeff Dardia, who joins us. And John writes, thank you. I'm a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been out for a while. Where I live, I haven't met many veterans. Miss the community, friendship, and ability to relate. Your podcast connects me to other veterans who can relate with me and somehow I to them. This is crucial for me. I love my life, but I do miss the camaraderie of war. Listening to y'all talk helps me feel connected to other warriors. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Just an amazing, amazing comment and certainly one that we value. Uh, Another comment from episode 114, Scott Spooner. Uh, Kevin writes, probably saved my life between tonight and tomorrow listening to this. Fighting addiction and sobriety three times now. Failed military career. Guys, I don't know how we can even measure the idea that somebody listening to this podcast, you know, his life may have been saved because of the words of one of the stories that is told here. But that's a big part of the reason why we do this because, well, I mean, we can impact people and we know that because these stories are so important. So again, John, Kevin, thank you so much for the comments. We certainly appreciate you guys reaching out to us and continue to do it. We love hearing from you guys. I want to give a quick shout out to our friend Bobby. He made another very generous donation to the podcast this weekend. Folks, we don't make any money off this thing. Uh, we just do it because we love it and we uh, you know, want to invest in people. And so the donations help us out. Uh, you can go to our website if you'd like to donate, hasaground.com. But it does. there are costs associated with keeping the podcast and the website up and running and everything. So uh, if you feel comfortable doing it, if not, don't sweat it. It's, it's you know, either way, whatever you guys feel like doing. But we certainly appreciate them when we get them. And then finally, make sure you leave a rating if you're listening to us through Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't, uh, go on to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating. We want to get Hazard Ground into the top 100 Apple Podcasts. It's the easiest way to help this show out. It's the easiest way to grow it, and it's free. It doesn't cost you anything, just a few moments of your time. It doesn't have to be a long review. Just something quick. Give us five stars and move along. So we certainly appreciate, again, all the support. As I mentioned, the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, follow us all there, as well, our website, hazardground.com. Hope you guys have a wonderful Thanksgiving upcoming, and here's this week's episode. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground Podcast is a former Army infantry captain who had six years of active service. He had two deployments to Iraq in his time. He wrote a book about his experiences in Iraq called Legion Rising, Surviving Combat and the Scars It Left Behind. He also established a nonprofit organization called Legion 8 Foundation, which assists military families. He is Jeff Morris joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Jeff, welcome, man, and thank you for being here. No, thanks for having me. Excited to be on and appreciate all the great work you guys are doing. Thank you. No, thank you. I mean, uh, we, we love it when people reach out uh, to us because you reached out to us earlier in the year to want to tell your story. And that's kind of like that's like the, the, the hype for us, you know, that people are, are excited to tell their story and want to tell their story because without you guys in these stories, you know, we're only telling them because you guys have stories to tell. So uh, we certainly appreciate you reaching out and to the audience listening. We encourage you. Uh, if you're a military member to tell your story, reach out to us. Or if you know somebody who's got a good story, certainly reach out to us. But uh, let's start back at the beginning for you, because uh, you were in Iraq at a very critical time. It's weird. We sort of dovetailed um, uh, your deployments and my deployments in Iraq. We were 
sort of a bookending, I should say, uh, when you were there. So I'm, I'm curious to hear about the experience. But how did your military career start? Yeah, it started uh, kind of really two parts to it. I initially wanted to go in out of college and ended up having some shoulder issues from, from playing ball in college and, and didn't get in. So Which ball are we talking? Football, baseball? Uh, football. Okay. Football. I played football at a small school in Birmingham, Alabama, and ended up uh, having a couple of shoulder surgeries, and this was pre-9-11. And at the time, the military, I was actually going to go in the Navy at first and basically told me after the second one was reconstructive surgery, said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll, we'll never take you. But again, that was pre-9-11. So thought the military dream was, was over, left, started a corporate America career, and then moved out to the Dallas-Fort Worth area from Florida. And then 9-11 happened and just felt compelled to try one more time. Uh, and, and amazingly, I always kind of laugh that, you know, hey, yeah, we'll take your shoulder. <laughs> You're good now. But yes, yeah, so I made the decision to, to go the Army route this time. Uh, so I was actually in the recruiter's office two days after 9-11. Uh, but ironically, I, I grew up in Destin, Florida, which is the world's luckiest seafood fishing village. And I'm allergic to all seafood. <laughs> and the Navy had no problem with that. And it cleared me medically for that. But the Army medically disqualified me for the, for the allergy. So I had to go through about six, eight months of the waiver process. Long story short, I say that I ended up shipping off for basic training in October of 2002. Where were you exactly on 9-11? What do you remember? I was driving to work. I was working for CarMax at the time. I was an inventory manager for them. And I was driving into work, and I parked in the parking lot right when the second tower hit. And immediately ran inside and... You know, we were supposed to be open to the store and nobody was doing anything. Just, we all just huddled around the TV and, and watched it and watched everything you know, go down, just like the rest of the world in complete shock. And just literally right then and there in that moment, uh, just the, the, the feeling hit again that I, I have to do this. I have to try one more time. So you enlist um, and you had a college degree at this point in time or no? I did. So I had my so degree. Why did you not try to go the officer route from the beginning? I did. That's okay. I just I had to go part of the the OCS. You list for an OC, OCS option. Got it. Correct. Yep. Just because I didn't have any ROTC or anything in my in my background, so okay. I had to go to basic first and then off to OCS. So you basically, you know, easily had what seven or eight months before you actually got in. You know, you had to go to basic for nine weeks and then what six months of OBC. OBC correct. Yeah. So it was. Uh, Nine weeks of basic training, then a two-week break, then went off to officer candidate school. That was 14 weeks. Got my commission in April of 2003. Then I had a short break before the infantry officer basic course started, so I went to airborne school, knocked that out. Then 16, I think it was 16 weeks of IOBC. Uh, there Fort Benning. That was summer of 2003. Then ranger school, went to ranger school. You got a story, you got a tab. I got a story. I got hurt at Ranger School. Uh, got out of that, went and had knee surgery. Fixed the meniscus on that. And because I was, uh, my duty location was going to be Fort Hood with 1st Cavs. Mm -hmm. uh, since at the time, if you were going to a unit that had deployment orders in the next 12 months, they didn't give you a second shot at Ranger School. And so I rehabbed from surgery, and that was early 2004. And then from there, it was uh, off to Fort Hood. I got there in April of 2004. The unit had just deployed. So I did all my in-processing and then deployed in, in May of 2004 and, and met the unit in Iraq. Wow. Um, that's, a, that's a long time after you enlist. 
uh, almost what two full years, right? And so, a- did did you feel like, you know, God, this is a long. I wanted to go to combat quickly, and it just didn't happen in that way. You know, I did, but and sometimes you got to go back and think about history too. You know, when I enlisted, uh, I guess Iraq was on the radar, but you know, we we hadn't invaded Iraq yet. We had pretty much cleaned out Afghanistan already. You know, so I didn't know where I was going to be going. By the way, for the- I can't help but chuckle when you say we had cleared out Afghanistan already, and 19 years later we're still there. I know. But, you know. I know. Again, re- <laughs> we, re- re- we- re- <laughs> revisionist history. Right. I, 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 we all thought we were uh, done. <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah, so I mean, it, I guess it was really, it was during OCS, uh, spring of 03, when we invaded Iraq, that I think that's when I knew, like, you know, the stars were kind of aligning, where I'm not going to be going into Af- Afghanistan, or, you know, heck, back then we used to get around, like, man, we'll, we, we did Afghanistan, we'll blow through Iraq, heck, we may end up going to Syria or something next. But yeah, when you started to see kind of things post-initial in, uh, early signs of the insurgency. I think the writing was on the wall that was in my future. All right. So you get to Iraq, you join the unit downrange. Um, and when do you actually get there? I mean, this is all happening pretty quick, I guess, right? Oh yeah. It was a whirlwind. I mean, just a, a whirlwind. You say a couple of years, it, it went by in the blink of an eye. And, you know, next thing I know, I, during that time, I probably had moments of what you mentioned before, but when I got there, it was like, man, where did the last two years go? Here I am. Let's, it's time to do this. When you get there in the spring of 04, um, where, where do you end up going? Um, you know, what's your mission? What do you find out? And do, do you feel kind of prepared for all this? Yes and no. So I, uh, again, I went to, uh, I was assigned to nine calf and one nine was kind of right there in the heart of Baghdad. The, the unit had actually been split up. Uh, the companies had, and so I, I was assigned to headquarters of one nine that was in a fob outside of the international zone, right off of Hype Street. Uh, so Muthana Airfield, it was Fob Headhunter. They changed the name to Fob Independence to be more politically correct down the road. But yeah, so I got there and, you know, initially didn't take over platoon right away. I, you know, worked in the, uh, technically I worked in the S2 shop. They found out I could type fast, so I just helped type up reports. Rule number one, when you go in the military, you know this, never let anyone know you can type. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> made that mistake. You know, but really what I did is I just shadowed uh, Charlie Company. Charlie 1-9 was on that fob. And I'd initially been told that sometime in the next three to four months, I'd be taking over a platoon there. Uh, so during the day, I just shadowed the different platoon leaders and, and went out and just to try to learn the terrain and, and, and kind of learn, you know, you, you train up one way in the schoolhouse at Fort Benning, and then you get to Iraq and you realize you're doing things completely uh, in different. a much different manner. Yeah. Yep. So really, I just try to be a sponge and take it in and, you know, get to know the men and, and, and be there and learn, but also be invisible, not be the, the FNG, you know, out trying to, hey, I got an idea. Let's let's do this. When I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But yeah, so I did that. And then it was a couple of months later, I was told, and, and at the time, Hypha Street was really starting to pick up as one of the, the hotbeds of the insurgency there in the spring of 04. And so I was all gung-ho to, to be a platoon leader on Hypha Street, and then I was told that I was actually going to go to Alpha Company 1-9 that had been detached to a National Guard unit from Arkansas, and they were based down in the international zone. So all these guys that I've been working and getting to know over the last couple of months, I realized that not only was I not going to be a platoon leader with them, I wasn't even going to be on the same fob with them. So I got shipped down to the international zone and took over my platoon and, uh, 
it was early July 2004 uh, when I became a platoon leader. What did and, you what did what did you like and what did you not like about the green zone and being there? It was great in the sense of we had a lot more amenities, Bob Headhunter, because you know, things had gotten so bad on Haifa Street. Like we, uh, it was pretty Spartan living up there. Uh, in fact, at some point, the roads had gotten so bad. We all we ever had for lunch every day. My, my wife gives me a hard time now. Like, why don't you make a sandwich? I'm like, I had enough sandwiches in those freaking years. <laughs> you know, those couple of months, I should say, on Bob Headhunter. I don't think I ever want another ham and turkey sandwich again. <laughs> You know, but down at the International Zone, you had a lot more amenities. Uh, you know, what was disappointing about it is the mission there was much different. So the unit that I'd gone to, instead of going up north to patrol Haifa Street, we actually patrolled south down in the, I forget the name of it. We always laugh. We called it the penis. You know, if you remember the shape of Baghdad, you got that big hook around the Tigris River. Yep. And nothing was going on. It was down where Baghdad University was. That mm-hmm. was one of our main missions was to provide security for that uh really the you know no combat whatsoever uh nothing going on very safe area and yeah i mean you know you get the mindset like you want to be a part of the action especially when you you hear you had been up there before and you see your sister company is is involved in all this combat just north of you uh you it, it sounds crazy but you want to be a part of it i mean it's what we all signed up for and nothing was going on down there but because things were getting so bad on Haifa Street, after about a month of uh, patrolling the area south of the international zone, the decision was made to uh, bring us back up to start uh, helping out with Charlie Company up on Haifa Street uh, for a multitude of reasons. One, just you know, more bodies, uh, but two, uh, just the, the Bradley fighting vehicles we had. We were mechanized infantry, and there had been a couple of, of unfortunate uh, KIA events on Haifa Street, and the decision had been made that up-armored Humvees, we didn't really even have any up-armored Humvees back in the early part of the war, at least not <laughs> how things evolved over time. Uh, but there was one instance where uh, one of the soldiers from 1-9, from Charlie 1-9, uh, was, was killed by an RPG through a Humvee, and the decision was made that you could only go on Haifa Street if you were in a Bradley or an M1. So okay. that was... Early August, and I guess I always say I got my combat cherry popped. Uh, it was August 12th. I'll never forget it. And we were rolling up Haifa Street, going north. And, you know, man, it was like something you see in a movie. Uh, it was, you know, with tires in the road, lit on fire, black smoke, had the road blocked. And it was very obvious they were trying to funnel us uh, into a different area mm-hmm. and not knowing any better. And, you know, instead of just stopping and turning around or doing something different, we turned left just like they wanted us to. And as soon as we did that, a couple of teams popped out from around the corner, an RPG team, and shot an RPG and went in between my Bradley and my platoon sergeant's Bradley. Completely missed. Uh, but, man, it just you know, scared the shit out of me. And I, I've never never hid that fact that, you know, we all, we all kind of froze. No one returned fire. And... You know, then it was over. It, it happened in a split second. Uh, there was no follow-on attack after that. Unfortunately, we escaped without any injury. And you know, again, back then, just to how much times have changed. You know, we always drove around our Bradleys with the hatch open, the Bradley commander standing up. We all turned around and said, you know, we were dick definitely. That's how high up we were standing out of the Bradleys. And yeah, it was just it was over. And 
you know, the, the good thing is the, the group I was a part of and I'd taken over, you know, had some really great mature NCOs and we all kind of acknowledged the fact that we didn't react the way we should have and that we would take that experience, learn from it. And the next time it happened, we would react in a, in a much, much more efficient manner. Well, there's, there's two things there. Um, one, I want to, I want to ask about the, the, you didn't react in the right manner. Like what were, in hindsight, what were you supposed to do? I mean, because I've been in similar situations where, you know, a guy pop shots at you and you can't see the target or a guy fires an RPG and you can't see, you know, you, you, you know, the general direction where it came from, but you can't, you know, positively identify a target to shoot at. So what were you supposed to do? I think there, in this case, we, we did see them. I mean, I remember it vividly just seeing these guys come out and, they were guys from across. I'm, I'm guessing they were probably guys from the uh, from over in Sodder City because again things were really picking up there, and that was right across the river from us. And they had the all black outfits on, uh, and the fact that it, it was when I say react more efficiently, like multiple people in the platoon saw them, and we just froze. We didn't engage in time. Now, granted, they may have been able to get the RPG off first. Uh, it was the fact that we saw a target and were slow to react the way we've been trained to do. So, and again, I think some of that is just the, you know, the, the first time something like that happens, it's like, holy crap, you know, <laughs> this guy's shooting at me kind of deal. This is the real deal. And, you know, we didn't beat ourselves too much over it. Uh, again, no one got hurt. It wasn't a sustained operation where we all just froze and, and didn't do anything. It just, uh, it was over in the blink of an eye. All right. And you mentioned real briefly that, you know, it scared the shit out of you. Uh, and, and I always ask that question to people from all different sorts of military backgrounds, but I, I, I'm always curious um, how much fear people feel. Cause I, look, I think it's natural. I mean, there were times I could admit that I was afraid uh, it manifested itself in different ways and I reacted in different ways, but I think generally it all goes back to fear. And a lot of people say, hey, listen, no, I wasn't really scared. You know, just my training kicked in sort of deal. But I, I'm just curious if you could expound a little bit on that fear and that moment and what you were feeling. Yeah, I think I think you nailed it. It's uh, and I don't. I agree. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, that's not a normal life experience. And you want to say, and I think, and not I think, I know in time uh, we did react better, and the training did kick in. It was just that initial, the, the pause, and you know, and you you think about it, you try to mentally discipline yourself, and right, how am I going to act? And I think all guys like us and gals like us that sign up, you think that when something like that happens, that you're going to be prepared to react in the right way. But the fact of the matter is you don't know that until it happens, you know, the, the fight or flight I've, you know, that day we all kind of froze, but even then six months later, when we had been in sustained combat, uh, you see some people freeze up in, in certain situations. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, the fear was not like I didn't go home and have nightmares over it. It was just in that initial moment when it happened, I froze and did not react. Uh, but in the future, we learned from that experience and took it in and were, I, I want to say, I hate to say more prepared for it, but, uh, or just experience of you know, repetition, muscle memory. Uh, but in time, not that the fear went away because I think the acknowledgement of what was going on was still there. It was just the ability for the training to kick in and react accordingly. That first combat experience is always something that stays with you, right? Subsequently, as you start to get more engagements, how do you react and how do things go? Yeah, you, you learn. I mean, early on, we've always said that 
the enemy, we, we started getting our first couple of injuries, uh, first couple of Purple Heart recipients. And, but, but we evolved. We learned what the enemy was doing, what their tactics were, and we adjusted in kind. And you know, the, the way Hypha Street is set up, you have Hypha Street is this large four-way street, a major intersection in the middle between another large street, and that area was called Chalil Square. And if you look at Haifa Street, it's a nice area, nice buildings, a lot of Saddam's, you know, higher ups in the army, they all live there. But the areas behind it were just shanty towns. I mean, mud huts, uh, a maze, no rhyme or reason how the streets worked, uh, raw sewage running through the street. And so that's where the majority of our of our contact would take place when we'd be back patrolling those areas. And the way it worked is the the insurgents, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq influence was really growing on Haifa Street during that time. And so kind of the, the, the pace of, of our combat would be, they would pay just the local populace, very poor area. They would just pay them to harass us with grenades. So we'd be on our patrols and, you know, grenades, you know, lobbed over a wall, and, you know, and it's hard to fight in that terrain. It, it's so, it's such a maze and there's no rhyme or reason behind the streets and, and how they're set up. And so the, the insurgents, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq influence that was growing there, they would pay the local populace, uh, the teenagers and yeah. young kids, to harass us with grenades. Uh, so they weren't big coordinated ambushes the majority of the time. And that was just kind of the, the harassment that we would face. And, and it worked. We had guys, uh, multiple men, you know, with grenade shrapnel. And then once every couple of weeks, the, the true insurgents, they would stage a large coordinated attack against right. us. It was it was the hasty ambushes versus the deliberate ones. I mean, you know, most of those we found were when we would get stuck in traffic, right? We're running a, you know, I was running a log convoy from point A to point B, and we would have to go through Baghdad in the city, and you get stuck in these traffic jams, and that's when you really just start crapping your pants because, you know, you got rooftops all around. These guys can pop shot you from anywhere, and you're in a defenseless position. You can't really go anywhere, and so traffic for us was always a, a big-time, you know, dangerous spot. It was a choke point. Um, and, and if you started to take the same routes enough, you would know that they could they could mount a deliberate ambush by purposely creating traffic spots. Exactly. And so kind of the way we adjusted from that is, you know, we would take our Bradleys out on Haifa Street and, you know, and that's where we would dismount. I mean, you couldn't get Bradleys back in the, the shanty areas back behind all the large buildings. And so we, to avoid exactly what you're talking about, uh, there is only so many routes we could take to get down into on the Haifa Street. You know, but we tried to vary it up the best we could. Uh, there was a couple of fields we could take the Bradleys in and dismount and come over walls and different areas there just to avoid the repetition. But at some point, you, you just can't avoid it because there's only so many ways. And you're exactly right. They would, you know, Haifa Street's very busy street. And generally, you know, you see... 12 Bradleys rolling up Hyphen Street, people are going to get out of the way. But you knew when they did that something was going on. The road was purposely blocked. And that's when we kind of knew the, the large coordinated ambushes, uh, unlike the, the hasty ones back in the, the, the Shanty area. Let's go to your first kind of, uh, you know, major engagement um, where you sustained a casualty uh, because you uh, came from a unit that I think you told us had uh, 27 Purple Hearts. Like, that's amazing. We did. We did. So the first, uh, so we made it probably about three weeks of operating on Haifa Street without any injuries. And then uh, the first one was grenade shrapnel. And of those 27, 
uh, I want to say, uh, I think all of them were from grenade shrapnel. And it, it was just, you know, we got one, then the next week we got two. Uh, and again, these were usually just harassment type deals. Now, the first major operation that we were a part of, that was on September 12th, 2004. And what we had found is we would go out and run our operations on Haifa Street. And then when we would leave, you would see the insurgents come out. We had the J lens camera up on a mm -hmm. headhunter. So you can kind of get eyes on what was going on out there. And you would see the insurgents just come out and basically as a way to, you know, to strike fear in the local populace, they would just march around the streets, take their AKs and their RPGs, like, oh, look at us. We ran off the mighty Americans. And so what we did in early, it's late August, early September, uh, we did a big two-company operation, Alpha Company and Charlie Company. We went out, you know, 20-something Bradleys and occupied a couple of buildings and, you know, hundreds of men on the ground in these buildings. And then when we left, we had some SEAL snipers attached to us. And we left the SEAL snipers and we left uh, a small contingent of, of our force there, security forum. And the rest of us left. And so, you know, it, it worked flawless. We left, all the insurgents came out and started, you know, hooting and hollering, like, look what we just did. And the SEALs just picked them off one by one. Now, again, you know, the Army, hey, this is a great tactic. Let's work. Let's let's do it again, and let's do it again. And so it didn't take long for the insurgents to kind of realize what we were doing. So on September 12th, back to that day, uh, it, was, uh, it was supposed to be a long, longer operation. We had nine SEAL snipers attached to us, and we went and occupied this 17-story building. And uh, the rest of us left, and we knew something was up. Uh, we had left behind the nine SEAL snipers and a nine-man element from the, from the battalion scout platoon was there to pull security for them. And it was unusual because we did this at about four in the morning. And when we left, they generally never attacked us at night. Uh, but on this day, when we were leaving, uh, we were exfilling back to our base. Uh, we had multiple RPGs shot at us. And so we're kind of thinking to ourselves, all right, that's, that's not normal. What's going on? And as it turned out, there was this mosque right there at the, uh, the main intersection in Toledo Square I'd mentioned before, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq was set to film a propaganda video that day. And so they had uh, shot at us when we left, and then they came out in the streets to film their video, and there was, I mean, I have a video of it now. I mean, there was, you know, at least 50 of these guys all just walking around the streets with RPGs, AKs, and the element that was left behind the engagement criteria was supposed to be, you know, five military age males with weapons, you know, there was 50 out there. And so they, they were given the go ahead to engage. And when they did just all hell broke loose, everyone quickly realized where the shots were coming from. And so we were quickly told that we had to leave the base to go back to exfil these guys. And on the way in, I mean, it was just, Man, it was crazy. Uh, one platoon pulled up to occupy Toledo Square, and I was in the middle platoon. We were tasked with getting the SEALs out, and then we had uh, our, our other platoon was pulling rear security for us at a different intersection. And when we pulled up and stopped, I mean, it was like you know, July 4th. I mean, just uh, I've never seen, you know, that many tracer rounds and RPGs being shot at everybody on the ground. So we kind of had to fight our way in, and... Uh, 
got in, got the seals down. And then right when that happened, we ended up with a couple of injuries with, with my guys on the ground floor. The platoon behind us pulling rear security, a car bomb, VBID, was able to get through their perimeter and make it in our inner perimeter and ended up slamming into our uh, into our, one of our command vehicles. It was my company commander. Was, he was out on the ground, but fortunately no one was, there were some minor injuries in that in that Bradley, but the, the Bradley actually caught on fire. And oh, wow. Able to, to get the guys. I actually, uh, two guys got silver stars for that day for climbing on top of the burning Bradley and, and get the, the crew out of there. It's pretty heroic. And then a lot of the fighting had kind of centralized on the ground because again, I was in the building where we were getting the seals out. And so there's a, a lot of attention directed at us there. So I had three injuries, uh, all of which seemed relatively minor, although one of them ended up being pretty serious. The grenade shrapnel went through his leg and ended up getting in his bloodstream and the shrapnel got stuck in his heart. So they had to do emergency surgery on, on that soldier to, to get him. He actually wasn't one of my guys. He was one of the scout platoon guys, but two of my men were injured. So that was the first sustain. I mean, this was an all, I mean, you know, gosh, four or five hours of continuous fighting and then we're able to really stabilize everything, get our, you know, get our casualties evac down to the cache in the green zone and, uh, there's a lot of interesting things about that day, about September 12, 2004. Is after, and you may remember this, when we exfilled, the Bradley was still on fire. And the decision was made due to some sensitive equipment that was in the Bradley, uh, that the Bradley had to be destroyed. And so there is this short moment where we were exfilling and another group was coming in to pull security on that Bradley, and they were told to halt. And so... The Bradley's out on Hyper Street with no American forces around. A huge crowd formed around it. They were putting the Al-Qaeda in Iraq flag in the barrel. Uh, just, you know, hundreds of people around that. And we came in with a, with a couple of Kiowas, and uh, they were told to destroy the Bradley. And so shot. I, I, again, I wasn't on the ground, so some of this is secondhand information. Uh, but eight Hellfires were shot into the Bradley. And with that... Many, and depending, depending on the narrative you've been listening to, they will say many innocents, uh, air quotes, on the ground, Iraqis, were killed. Uh, there was a reporter from a Middle Eastern uh, news. It wasn't Al Jazeera. I forget the name of it. Uh, but he was actually filming live and was killed by the airstrike. And what that did is it just gave uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq a, a huge propaganda lift to say that you know, look what the Americans did. All these innocents on the ground, the Americans came in and shot into this crowd of people. And, of course, I would argue that, you know, innocents dancing around a, a burning vehicle, all carrying weapons. Uh, I don't know how you quantify that as innocent. But, yes, there were numerous casualties, and that was a very large news event back in, back in late summer of 2004. Jeff, did you ever get to a point where you're looking at this going, this is more than I signed up for? Like, I, I didn't, I knew it was going to be tough, but I didn't think it was going to be like this. I mean, did you ever have that thought or feeling? Man, no, I didn't. And I don't say that sound cruel or macho. I, I think it's, I, I would actually argue it's the exact opposite. Like, this is what I signed up for. Like, we're fighting, and again, you know, a lot's changed since then. But back then, I felt like we were fighting an insurgent community that if we weren't fighting them there, they would be coming and trying to 
have additional attacks on, on our home turf back here in the States. So I, I really felt that what we were doing was making a difference. Uh, I felt like it was any, like it was everything that I had signed up for. And I would say that the majority of the men uh, that I was serving with at the time all felt the exact same way. Okay. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm always just curious how when, when people who, you know, want to uh, sign up in a post 9-11 era know that they're getting into combat, but it's always sometimes you, you wonder if it's more than you bargained for, right? I mean, because it, sometimes there, there's a, there's an amount of loss that you don't think you're going to sustain because, again, you go into it thinking we're always going to win, right? Like, because we're American and, and we always win. But, you know, big wins versus small wins. Uh, in, in big wins, you can take a lot of smaller losses that, that impact you a lot bigger than you think. So I'm just... Uh, I was wondering how you were feeling about the amount of casualties your unit was sustaining and going, man, this is, you know, we're out here getting our ass kicked. You know, early on, I, I, it was frustrating because, and I talked about it before, early on, I, I would say they got more of us than we got of them. Uh, but as time went on, and uh, again, we evolved our tactics and learned what they were doing and got better. Uh, I, I would say, I, I don't want to ever say that I think we caught up in numbers, uh, Maybe we did, maybe we didn't, I don't know. Uh, but I do know that as time went on, we got more of them than they did of us. And the difference is they were injuring our guys. And, and you hate to see that. And, and a couple of my injuries were you know, career enders for some of my guys. Uh, but while we were getting injured, we were killing them. And you know, now I, you ask about more than I signed up for. I think the combat piece, you know, and you've been there it's, it's a rush i mean you it, it's like nothing i mean again i played football in college and played in front of some big crowds and you know cool experiences in life but nothing like the rush of that uh now with that rush you have to be willing to deal with the ramifications that can come from that and that can wear on you i, I think the biggest thing that i started to notice was this happy-go-lucky outgoing guy just how numb I was becoming to some of the things that I was seeing. I mean, there was one instance and I, I talk about in the book of these guys that we had shot and you know, one of them was a head wound and we walked up like, all right, this guy's dead. And the other guy was alive and started giving him medical aid. And then the guy had a round at his head. And I mean, he's right. I'm on, I don't, I'm on a knee in a pile of trash and this guy's right next to me. And I just hear this horrible sound. Uh, and I look over and the guy is sticking his fingers in the head wound, pulling his face out of the trash and just looking at me screaming and like oh. blood pouring out of the hole. And it's just horrific thing, this thing that you can't unsee. And I just remember that night, really almost in that instance, like that almost, not that it felt normal, but it didn't, it didn't bother me. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a sense that sucks to be that guy sort of thing, and, and you just yeah, discard and move yeah. on, right? Like Because if, if you stay in that moment longer than you should or need to or want to, it, it, that's when it starts to really get to you. Oh, you know, the whole Nietzsche quote of, you know, be careful when staring into the abyss because it'll start to, to stare back into you. And I, and I think, and I bring that up again, just that was the first time that I realized and just remembered that, you know what, man, I'm, I'm never going to be the same again. Like I, I'm turning into this cold, callous yeah. person that well, I've never become. It, it, you know, Jeff, you listen to the podcast, you know, it's something I, I say routinely when you go to war 
whether you come back physically the same or not, the person you were before died. You're never yes. the same again. That that person is dead because there is an experience that has altered you forever, uh, and you'll never look at things the same way. That's what combat does to you. And I don't say that in a in a in a grandiose sort of way or to over exaggerate it. It's just a fact of the matter. Um, there are things that I saw. There are things that you saw that will forever stay with me and forever have changed the view and the lens with which I see the world. And, and that's inescapable. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And I bring that up to while the action of what we were doing was everything that I signed up for. I guess that going into it, you don't ever think about that stuff. All right, what's this going to do to me you know, emotionally, spiritually, mentally? And that was the moment where I realized that just like you said, like the, the old Jeff is gone. Uh, because again, you can't unsee something like that. And then when you see it, for it to almost be not just normal. And like you said, like the, I laugh when you say, like, sucks to be that guy. Like, me and one of my team leaders, he was next to me, and we just kind of stopped and looked at each other, and we both went, holy shit. And then the guy's head fell back in the trash, and we're like, okay, he's dead. I mean, literally, that was our reaction. And that's not that's not normal, uh, but it is in that environment. So, yeah, it just, from there, it was just constant. It was just harassing. You know, we, we never had any mass casualty events. You talk about the 27. It was one here, two there, three there. And it just built up over time. I mean, uh, you know, two of my guys, uh, one of my squad leaders and one of my team leaders, each had three Purple Hearts each. And again, I'm not bringing up the numbers. It's something to boast about. It's, you know, their injuries and their people putting their life on the line in defense of our country. But uh, it almost just became part of our almost an expectation. I mean, we were attacked. Uh, you know, I think we figured it out at the end of the year, just kind of going back and reading reports. You know, 60% of the time we left our gates of the FOB, we were engaged in some type of, of combat. And while some people have an idea that it's fighting every single day, I think you and a lot of your listeners would know that getting attacked more than half the time you go out is, is unusual, even in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh Sometimes again, it looks like I said earlier, you know, it's more than you signed up for. You know, you, you yeah. knew it was going to be tough, but uh, the the operational tempo or op tempo, as we call it in the military, for the civilians listening, uh, just you know, it, it can overwhelm you. It can overwhelm all of us. So, uh, how does that deployment end? When do you get back home? I mean, you, you had twenty seven Purple Hearts. Any any KIAs as well, or no? No, no, no KIAs. Okay. Uh, I did. Uh, one of my best friends, a guy that. I hadn't known him that long. We met in training and it just instantly formed a incredibly tight friendship. A guy named Adam Malson. Uh, he was in a different unit, uh, but they were operating north of us. And he was killed uh, in February of 2005. And his wife sent me an email letting me know. So that was the first time that someone close to me. Now, the overall task force I was a part of there with 1-9, they lost five, uh, five KIAs. Uh, but I, I knew who they were, but I didn't know them. And I'm in no way discounting that loss. Just from my perspective, when Adam was killed, that was the first time that, you know, I lost a friend and man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, it really did. And it is, it, things were slowing down on Hypha street at that point, February, March, before we redeployed. And so it's kind of like, you're kind of on this thinking of, you know, man, I'm on the home stretch. Everything's going good. We've kind of cleaned up Hypha street you know, go us. And then to kind of end the point, the deployment on that note was, uh, was very sobering, but, you know, we came home and in, in March of 2005 and 
really took a lot of pride in what we had done. You know, this what was, you know, one of considered the hottest area in Baghdad uh, over the, the entire 12 month deployment. Uh, we had cleaned it up. There were no attacks uh, by the time we were leaving. So we took a lot of pride and got home and uh, my short stint as a platoon leader, nine months as a platoon leader, I was told I was going to go, you know, because I was with Alpha Company, I was told I was going to go be the executive officer of Charlie Company, which was great because, again, that's who I initially thought I was going to go to. We worked with those guys every day. I knew a lot of the guys, so it was a seamless transition. So I did that, and you'll understand this, and not to bore your listener, but the Army, uh, at least Fort Hood at the time, First Cav, was going through this transformation of going from traditional siloed armor and infantry uh, battalions and brigades mm-hmm. into these combined arms battalions. And so I bring that up to say that 1-9 Cav reflagged and 1-9 went out to Fort Bliss, and our unit went from being Charlie 1-9 to we became Bravo Company 1-8 Cav. And the significance in that is 1-8 had historically been an armor or a tanker uh, for your listener, a tanker battalion. And so they had no captains in the queue to take command. And I would put in my packet to go to the Special Forces Assessment and Selection course when my bosses came to me and our company commander had made the decision to leave active duty. And so my bosses asked me if I would temporarily take command as a first lieutenant and kind of help start training the group up to get ready for the next deployment that would probably be a year out. And they would let me stay in command for at least 90 days to ensure that I got graded and it was on my official service records. And then once the captain showed up, I could you know, hopefully go off and pursue my SF dream. So I took command. Uh, so yeah, talking about a whirlwind, you know, so nine months as a platoon leader, five months as an executive officer, and, you know, then I'm taking command. And it, it's not because, and just to clarify, it's not because I was this rock star stud, you know, infantry officer it was literally there was no one else so many guys that had gotten out and i was the most senior lieutenant at the time but it was a great opportunity so i took command in october uh, 2005 and then in early 2006 uh, sure enough a captain showed up and i was you know called to battalion and a brigade commander they wanted to speak with me and i figured this was going to be their you know hey thanks for everything you did this guy's going to take command now and you can go do whatever it is you want to do. But instead they said that, you know, they were really happy with the job that I was doing and that we had a pretty good idea of where we were going to be deploying next. And it was another really hot part of Baghdad that had been seeing sustained combat. And one acre we had gone to, we had transitioned to, they had been deployed the same time we had before in 2004. They had just been in a much slower area. They had seen some combat, combat and had some losses. Again, I don't want to discount their experiences, but nothing like what we had seen. And my bosses said they liked the idea of having a, a combat-tested kind of core group that had been together to kind of lead the charge when we first got there and you know put us at the tip of the spear, per se. So they asked me if I would pull my SF packet for SFAS, and they would let me stay in command and get a full 18 to 24 months in command and take the unit back to Iraq. So that was a... It's not, often, it's not often they ask you that. Was that one of those ask sort of tell deals, or they actually were genuinely asking? They were generally asking, because they knew uh, how much I wanted to pursue the special ops route. And I, I would consider it a 
been asked. Never been asked that question before, but uh, great question. Well, I mean, again, it, it wasn't a volunteer. Yeah, it wasn't a volunteer. The needs of the army supersede the needs of Jeff <laughs> or Mark or anybody else for that yeah. for that matter. So it's not often you you get. I mean, you know, we tell all these stories, and you run into situations like that where they say, "Hey, do you know, do you want to do this?" And it's almost like serendipity, if you will. That it works out that way, but it's just not often that it happens that they genuinely ask. It's more of, hey, listen, you're, you're not going to assessment selection. You're going to take this unit overseas, deploy, and you'll go when you get back. And Roger, sir, ma'am, yeah. moving out. Like, you know, that's that's it. Yeah, no, it was an ask, and uh, it, was, it was a no-brainer. I mean, I knew I was giving up on a goal of mine, especially with things not having worked out in Ranger School. There was that, you know— individual fire that I had that I felt like I kind of needed to prove to myself that I could do one of these goals that I had initially gone to the army to do. And, and they told me, you know, I could always try when I came back, I would miss the traditional first lieutenant promotable window when you're supposed to go. But you know, they said they would, you know, put in a way to allow me to go as a captain because I knew I'd be getting promoted about a year after that. Uh, but yeah, man, just the experience I'd have with those guys, the, the bond we had, it was, it was a no brainer. Now, you know, the downside to that is, my ex-wife and I, uh, literally a month after I took command, before I thought it was going to be, you know, when I thought I was going to be only in for three months, we found out she was pregnant with our first child. And we thought that you know, things went well, that we'd be going off to Fort Bragg and would be in schools for a couple of years and be together as a young family and, and realized he was due in, in early August of 2006. And we knew that I was going to be deploying right after that. Uh, so I took command. We did the train up. He was born uh, late July 2006, and then uh, about three months after that is when I deployed. So, yeah, man, having to say goodbye to that little three-month-old boy was, uh, man, toughest, uh, at the time, toughest thing I'd ever done. You know, especially yeah. knowing, you know, it's, you know, you go the first time, you're naive and stupid. You don't really, you hear about things that can happen, but once you experience those things, you you know, they can and most likely will happen. Uh, so it was, uh, it was tough, especially the area we knew we were going to uh, over in Eastern Baghdad, uh, this go around. But yeah, I, I always, know, I always say that. I mean, I was fortunate enough for my deployments. I was single. Uh, I had no kids, you know, I had, I had me to worry about, right? Like you just bring, right. bring your ass home. It was that simple. Um, and, and for the folks who have deployed, who did it with families and everything else, it's, it's a different level, man. It's, it's something I can't relate to. And, you know, selfishly, I look back, thankfully, I didn't have to relate to it. You know, I, I kind of, I tell my wife now that, you know, I'm, I'm nearing the end of my military career. I'd love to deploy one more time. And she looks at me sideways. She's going to leave the kids. I'm like, I, I don't yeah. want to, but it's just like this, this, you know, before I hang it up, uh, I'd yeah. love to go one more time. And, and, you know, kind of like, I always equate it to like a, a, a athlete trying to win a championship before they retire, you know, like, I just want to go one more run at it as crazy as it sounds, but you know, I think we all understand the, the itch that you sort of got to scratch in that manner because you talked about the adrenaline uh, of, of being deployed and the challenge of it. I think a lot of us all welcome it, but with families, man, it's a whole different world out there. And I know exactly, exactly what you're talking about. And even now, and, and we'll get into the second deployment, but I'm out and I still miss it. It's, I tell me all the time, people, I do miss it. I'm like, I miss it every single day, uh, but I never want to do it again. So I, completely talk out of both sides of my mouth but yeah i I totally get what you're saying even with the family i have four kids now uh but yeah so it was uh you know this deployment the second one got off to uh really just 
rough start for a multitude of reasons. As soon as we got there, uh, you know, so we'd left late October, do the Kuwait thing, you know, so we're in country in November. And as soon as we got there is when they announced that uh, the surge was going to take place. And so our 12 month deployment, we were told was going to be extended to 15 months. And by getting there in November, we already knew we were going to miss one Thanksgiving and one Christmas. And now we knew we were going to miss two Thanksgivings and two Christmases. Uh, during the right seat, left seat rides with the outgoing unit. Uh, I mean, literally the, the last day, uh, the unit we were replacing, the majority of their people were already in Kuwait, had already left. And they had a small handful of guys back to finish their last rides with us. And on, I mean, these guys, it, was, it wasn't my company. It was our engineer company. They were, had, I think, three guys from the outgoing engineer company. And on the way in from the mission, they were hit with an EFP. And, and that was another thing going into this deployment. We didn't deal with IEDs a whole lot in the first deployment. And we knew the area we were going to was one of the most heavily IED areas in, in all of Baghdad and, and all of Iraq, really. Uh, and it wasn't the traditional IEDs. It was the uh, the EFPs that were gaining yeah. more mm-hmm. prominence. And you know how destructive those things are. But yeah, yeah. On, the way, on the way in from that mission, that unit was hit. And the engineer company from 1-8, you know, who I was a part of, uh, we lost one guy. But the outgoing unit, I think the three guys that were on there, two of those guys were killed. I mean, literally on the way home, bags already packed, getting on a flight that night to go down to Kuwait to meet the rest of their unit, and these guys were killed. And it just, you, know, you talk about a, a somber way just to kick things off, man. It was, uh, it was tough, really tough. All right, so you get to the second deployment. Um, did you expect that it was going to be as tough, if not tougher, than the first? I think it's tough, but in a different way, because we knew we were going into a different fight, whereas Piper Street was more traditional when you think urban combat, you know, the, the majority of it was on the ground, uh, an enemy we could shoot back at, and these guys would come out and attack us, whereas here in the AO we were assigned to, there was very little of that that, take place, that, uh, that took place. The majority was the EFPs. And there is a significant sniper threat. And, you know, those are the things that can really, you know, not that traditional urban combat is fun, but at least, you know, you, you have someone to shoot back at. Whereas here we knew we weren't. And plus the first deployment was designed more around true missions. Like it wasn't, you know, go out and just stay in sector all day. Whereas, you know, we went out, we had a target we were going after uh, or you know, uh, something we were intel we were trying to gather. Whereas the second deployment even though I was in charge of a larger force, I traditionally operated at much smaller forces than I did the first deployment because we had to have 24-7 presence in our AO at all times. And so, you know, companies split up, platoons split up into half platoons going out. And it's a very, very different fight. Uh, one that is a, you know, from a leadership standpoint, a tough sell, to be frank at times, to your men of, all right, sir, you're telling us that this area, especially where we were at, has had more IED attacks than anything else in Baghdad, and you want me to go drive around for eight hours? You know, what the F, sir? You know, but that was that was our mission. That's what we had to do. And, you know, it's early on, uh, we weren't attacked a whole lot, mm-hmm. you know, end of 06, beginning of 07. Uh, when the surge really, uh, it was February, uh, is when I think you started seeing additional units show up in country. And that's when we noticed a 
a dramatic increase in the attacks on us. And several of my vehicles hit by EFPs, uh, again, escaped, very fortunate with minor injuries. But I think what it, what it showed us was the power of that thing and uh, of what it could do to a Bradley. And you, probability, it's just a matter of time before, before we're hit. And sure enough, that happened on was, uh, March 15th, 2007. A uh, smaller element was out, one of my, my, my second platoon. I wasn't with them at the time. And we had been up all night the night before on a, going after a target. One of the few times we actually did get to go after a target. And guys were coming back to the base, and the lead vehicle, the lead Bradley, uh, was struck by an EFP. Everyone was okay, uh, but the vehicle was disabled. And so the, the platoon that was out had two Bradleys and two Humvees. And... Uh, the soldiers from the two Humvees got out to begin recovery operations on that Bradley. And then a secondary IED went off. And I mean, it, you know, I know, your listeners know, we know they do that. And we, we look for them. Uh, more often than not, we find them. But at this particular day, the the enemy has a vote too. And on this day, he, he won. And we didn't see that second IED. And it was designed for, for troops on the ground. You know, think of our version of a Claymore. It was a ball-bearing IED and it detonated and there were six men on the ground and four were killed instantly. Uh, two suffered catastrophic injuries. One was an amputee. The other had a significant abdominal wound. Then one soldier, a uh, kid named Jimmy Coon, jumped out under fire and a couple of pop shots at him and quickly kind of assessed the situation. There were really no other dismounts that could get out and help, you know, just the crews from the Bradleys and they were trying to get out. Coon got out and realized that the four, four of them were dead and he gave medical aid to the other two and temporarily kept them alive. And fortunately, and I, and I say fortunately, if something like that's going to take place, this attack took place. Uh, as part of the surge, remember, we had to go out and have patrol bases out basically and live amongst the people. And this uh, this attack took place right next to one of our sister companies patrol base. So they were able to get out, kind of take over the scene and, and, and get the bodies back to where, you know, back to headquarters. So yeah, man, you know, you lose four guys in one day, you talk before, like, is this more than I signed up for? And you know, in that environment that especially the power of EFPs, you know, something like that could happen, but you know, you never expect four from one event. And, you know, but then you got the other two to kind of rally behind to, you know, to find hope in them. And unfortunately, so that attack was on the 15th. On the 16th, we went and visited the other two individuals, Sergeant Ryan Green and Sergeant Nicholas Leitner. Visited them in the hospital. Uh, Green was in really bad shape. He was the one that was an amputee, and he was in a comatose state. You know, we were able to see him and hold his hand and uh, hold the phone up next to his ear so his mom, Linda, could talk to him. And, uh, you know, Doc... Dr. Leitner, he was our medic, Sergeant Leitner. You know, he was awake, laughing, cutting jokes with us, and you know, we thought for sure he would be okay. And, but unfortunately, on the March 18th, I got a call that uh, Sergeant Green, uh, once he had been evacuated to, to Germany, he had passed from his injuries there. So I had to go and inform the company. And he was just the, you know, the, the most liked guy in the company. I always say like every unit needs a Sergeant Green, man. This guy was just so full of life. And you know, not that 
one loss hurts more than the other, but just given the circumstances, that gut punch really hit the unit hard. Mm -hmm. So we had a, had a memorial for those five men on, uh, on March 20th. You know, and again, back to you know, more than I signed up for, maybe not that, but, you know, you, you go to the memorials and you see guys go up and give a speech about a fallen soldier. You know, you never expect to be the guy up there giving a speech for, for five. But we, you know, we did that and we got together as a company afterwards. You know, we laughed, we cried, we told stories about those guys. And, you know, hey, man, we still got Doc Leitner, you know. That guy's going to make it, that big, big old tough dude. And, you know, let's, let's rally behind him now. And unfortunately, the next day on March 21st, I got a phone call that Doc Leitner had made it all the way back to the States. And he, he passed from his injuries once he made it back here. You know, man, so... All six men gone, just in the most painful, drug-out way possible. I had to have another memorial for Doc Leitner after that. You know, but then we, we had Coon, who had, you know, kind of the hero of the day. And while things didn't work out the way we had hoped, you know, the guy that had kind of set the example for what bravery looked like on the battlefield, uh, you know, we had him to rally, rally behind. And I got wind in early April that, he was having a really tough time with things that maybe he could have done more, should have done more. So I called him to my room and his big old kid, man, six, six, all jacked up and muscle bound. And the weekend before we deployed, we lost a soldier at a going away party in an unfortunate alcohol related incident. And I, I bring that up is Coon gave him mouth to mouth. It was able, it, it temporarily kept him alive. He was brain dead. But by him doing that, it allowed his family the opportunity to drive down from Colorado and be there with them when the decision was made to pull the plug on him. Oh, wow. And so I, I told Coon that, you know, man, you're beating yourself up, but, you know, three families now have had an opportunity, you know, Joseph before he left and then you know, Sergeant Green and Sergeant Leitner's family to, to spend last moments with their boy because of what you did. And in our line of work, a lot of people don't get that opportunity, man. So, you know, at 23 years old, man, you hold your head high the rest of your life because for what you've given these families, you've already accomplished more in your lifetime than most people ever will. He just kind of nodded and you know, said thanks and, and left. And again, back to just, again, man, you can't make stuff like this up. Uh, a little more than 12 hours after that, Coon was shot and killed by an enemy sniper. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, man, it was uh, spring of 2007, man. I mean, just, and again, the, the magnitude of the loss, the manner in which it went down, the, who the people were. I mean, heck, one of the four guys that was killed, Sergeant Terry Prater, he had been with us the first deployment. He got a silver star for throwing himself in between one of his injured soldiers and another grenade that had been thrown at him. And could have medically retired, but fought to stay in and, you know, redeployed and it was killed. Yeah, it was just, it was tough, man. So at that point, I was initially supposed to change command. It was scheduled for late April. Just my time was up. It had nothing to do with what was going on. But because of that loss, they let me stay in command an extra month to kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say right the ship, but just kind of keep that core group that had just been together through so much uh, to keep that time, to keep us together during that. So I, Ended up changing command in May, and then about a week after I changed command, uh, 
we lost our eighth soldier, Sergeant Caleb Christopher. Uh, he was killed by a vehicle struck by an EFP, and he was killed instantly. So, yeah, man, that was the the eight guys, and our unit nickname was Legion, and that's where we had just, as time has gone on, we always referred to the men as the the Legion Eight. Gotcha. So that was a, you know, I was that's halfway through that deployment, and I well, finished up the rest of the time. And I want to ask you the same question I asked you before. Did this get to be too much? Was this more than you bargained for? It, and it's in the book. Uh, it's the prologue of the book. Uh, you know, and I, when Coon was killed, uh, it was a very graphic thing that, that happened to me. Uh, he, he wasn't killed instantly. And, you know, just out of, out of respect for his family, I won't go into all the details of it. Uh, you know, it's in the book. I'll, I'll say it. Like, I was part of helping carry him in. And it was, it was a head wound. And before I went to address the men later, I wanted to clean myself up a little bit. So I was in the bathroom and obviously covered in, in blood and another matter. And long story short, I noticed I had a cut going across my face and I didn't know what it caused. And I looked down and I had small fragments of the skull in my hands. And when I wiped the sweat off my face, I had oh, cut, wow. cut myself. Yeah, man, that that moment there sent me into a to a really bad spot for about five years after that. And not that, man, I didn't sign up for this because you know you know stuff like this could happen, but it uh, the cold, callous person I had become turned into someone just full of rage, uh, lack of care, and you know it extended out the rest of that deployment and when I made the decision to, I was really pretty disenchanted with the army at this point, not just, not for the loss. I mean, obviously that speaks for itself, but just for the mission and, and what we were doing, uh, was really questioning, uh, why are we driving around all the time, you know, just waiting to get blown up and losing soldiers for what's the end goal here? What's our end state? What's our exit plan? What is, what's, you know, the, what's our success criteria? And, just me personally, I didn't feel that I didn't have that same feeling like I felt in the first deployment where I was making a difference. So I made the decision to not stay in and pursue the SF route. I made the decision to resign my commission and, and leave once we returned. Uh, that was January of 2008 is when we came back. But uh, you talked before about, you know, dying. Like, uh, yeah, I, the old Jeff was dead. It's the easiest way I can put it. And it affected not only me personally, it affected my relationship. Uh, like a lot of guys came back and, you know, this three month old baby, I come back to an 18 month old toddler who doesn't know me. Uh, you know, my marriage was on the rocks. Uh, we ultimately ended up getting divorced and really outside of, you know, the, the love for my son, uh, I didn't care about anything. I, I didn't turn to drugs or alcohol. I just became an empty dark person that really didn't find much happiness or things to look forward to in life. A lot there. Um, you said it stuck with you for five years, that moment. What in particular stuck with you for five? Was it, was it that specific moment of, of having those skull fragments or was it just generally the whole thing, you know, compounding itself over an extended period of time? I, I think it was, it's obviously a collective series of events, but 
like many things, there's always uh, there's, there's one catalyst, there's one thing, and I, and I think that moment was 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 my catalyst for. Uh, I, when I say five years, like, man, I, I got out and I kept shaving my head. Like I did anything and everything in my power to not look into a mirror because when I looked into a mirror, I didn't, I didn't see me. I saw that. I mean, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say, uh, when I can kind of realize what had happened, I mean, it was this foggy moment when I realized what had happened and I was just like, what the F man, you know, that's, uh, and it just, uh, it sounds cliche but it's almost like I felt it searing itself into my memory. And, so, I mean, imagine going through life, like something you take for granted, like not looking to a mirror. And the few times I would, that moment, that feeling, that image, that sound he had made, all just came rushing back into me. And it just, you know, ruined my day. I was like, all right, well, the rest of the day screwed. And I went through the motions, and I was the biggest hypocrite in the world. Uh, I got out, I got a good job, I was making good money, I put this act on nine to five, and guys from the unit, I wasn't the only one having problems. We started to see our first suicides, and guys would call me, you know, in their truck, in the field, with a gun in their hand, you know, hey, sir, keep me from doing it. Uh, you know, I mean, I said all the right things, gave advice, uh, but I never took my own. I told people to open up about things and share things, and uh, I never did any of that myself. And so when I say five years, it was, you know, Christmas of 2011. And I went back to Florida to see my mom and stepdad and a couple of my brothers. And my mom looked at me and just, she had this phrase and make fun of me all you want. <laughs> I'm 46 years old, man. And I'm always going to be my mom's baby. And my mom had this thing of, you know, all my baby's big blue eyes are just the light of my life. And, Whenever I'm down or sad, I just look at those eyes and I know that everything's going to be okay. She always said that to me my whole life. And uh, that night, she just started crying, just looking at me. And I think she has some bad health news or something to tell me. And instead, she just looked at me when she got herself together and just said, man, my, it is gone. The, the light's gone. When I look at my baby's big blue eyes, you know, I don't, I don't see the light anymore. I see that my boy looks dead inside. And it just breaks my heart that you know there's nothing i can do there's something he's gonna have to figure out on his own and uh yeah sorry man i still get emotional when i talk about that no i mean uh, listen it is emotional yeah. there's not there's no reason to to not be emotional yeah. about it but yeah man so that was i guess kind of my aha moment that this act i was putting on and you know i wasn't as good at it as i thought i was and that people were seeing through it and it made me realize that while I hadn't been a bad father at all, but I was not being, you know, first the father that I'm capable of being. I wasn't being the son that I'm capable of being, the friend, you name it. Uh, and I knew that something had to change. So I finally took my own advice and I went to counseling and I looked for, like a lot of guys like me, you know, like, oh, if you weren't there, if you didn't see the things that I'd seen, you know, the typical cliche-ish veteran stuff that we do. Uh, so yeah, man, I, I looked for an out with this guy and he just wouldn't have it. He, he stuck with me and got me to open up and talk about things and, you know, come to, he asked me one time, the incident in the mirror, he asked me if I had accepted that. And I'm like, well, what do you mean, man? I guess as much as I could, he's like, no, you know, step back and think about that moment. You know, is it when you, when you see that image in your mind, is it 
you looking at yourself in the mirror or is it you like almost back from afar looking at yourself, looking in the mirror? And I never thought of it in that regard. And I said, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's probably more the latter. Like I'm almost from afar. And he said, well, Jeff, this just shows me that you haven't accepted this thing yet. And we can't deal with things unless they're real and things are real until we accept them. So we have to literally and figuratively get you back to where you can look into a mirror again. And, you know, that just really, it really stuck with me. It really resonated with me. And he talked a lot about, uh, acceptance and choice and it all just kind of clicked one day that uh, I I and I alone have the ability and the power uh, to make the choice every day to accept that these things are forever going to be a part of me there's nothing I can do that can go back and change decisions I made that you know ultimately led to you know men dying from those decisions and you know before I would I would focus on the negative of Oh, that one event where things didn't go our way instead of focusing on the 99 times where decisions I made probably did things that saved someone's ass. Uh, so for me, it just the power of choice uh, and how that held uh, really that it, it held my future that I could choose to focus on the burden of these experiences or I could focus on the privileges that I was able to be a part of the brotherhood, the standing up for those that can't stand up for themselves. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a one time sitting on this guy's couch like, hey, yep, I accept it. I'm going to choose to do the right thing. But it's an everyday uh, facet of my life that uh, I have the ability to make the right choice each and every day. And it's one that to this day, you know, 10 plus years later, after all these events went down, that, you know, every day I still ask myself, what's the what's it going to be today, Jeff? And. 9.9 out of 10 days, I make the right choice and focus on the positive and, and try to do things to set the example for, for others and, you know, for, for myself, for my family, to be the best man, husband, father, friend that I can be. But, you know, every now and then I have a tough day, and that's okay because I get to wake up the next day and I get to make the choice again. Excellent words. I mean, honestly, it's a, it, you can't say it enough. I, I think that we don't give ourselves enough latitude to, to be able to do that, to have a bad day and then come back and restart it again. Um, sometimes we let the bad days compound with more bad days. And uh, unfortunately, uh, there are times where that, that leads to a road where um, things, things you can't come back from it, right? And I mean, that's, it's, it's ultimately what we're fighting against in the veteran community uh, more often than not. But uh, that all said, you did write the book Legion Rising, uh, Surviving Combat and the Scars It Left Behind. I mean, obviously, it's a memoir of all of this stuff. But was there a lot of catharsis in that? Or was that more of a sort of honor of the guys we lost sort of deal? Yeah, the cathartic piece, you know, I get asked that a lot. And so I started the work with the Legion 8 Foundation, which initially started as a that was actually part of what my counselor wanted me to do was to open up to a group of people outside of the military. And I had moved to Tyler, Texas at that point, And I shared it with some people. I started doing CrossFit. Didn't have many friends there. Uh, and everybody knew something. I got a bunch of tattoos, and, but no one ever asked out of respect. But this one night I, you know, took a, took a beer of six to get the liquid courage to kind of open up about it for the first time. But I, I did. And someone said, well, man, let's do a, Let's do a hero wad, a workout of the day to honor the guys. And I had referred to them as the Legion 8. And so we called the workout Legion 8. So we started that back in 2012. And I bring that up to it just it took off. And so every year I was, 
you know, going out and doing different Legionnaire events around the country and, and telling the story of the men. And I think for me, that was the cathartic piece. Uh, the book, people have been on me for years to write a book. Uh, and again, back to this transformation and choice and acceptance we talked about, that, you know, it didn't happen overnight. I, I knew that, you know, emotionally I wasn't there. I knew that at some point it was a story that I felt needed to be told. And not that it's my story, but it's just two groups of, you know, incredible men over two deployments and the experiences that we went through. I felt it was something that people needed to hear about and not just because it's a sad sob story full of, you know, combat casualties. Uh, it's the message of what we were doing after that, seeing the positive influence that Legion 8 and our story and our message of choice and acceptance that it was having on other veterans and even non-veterans. I mean, every Legion 8 event, someone would come up to me afterwards and share with me the most intimate, you know, personal details of their life and how different things and experiences, much like my moment in the mirror, you know, everybody has their own. And what it showed me is that you know, tragedy and trauma don't discriminate and PTSD is not exclusive to the military. And, uh, you know, we all have our own perspective on life and that perspective is shaped off our own life experiences and none are any better or worse than the other. They're just different. And to see what our message, the impact it was having on others, uh, to me, the book, I wanted the book to be more about that. Uh, obviously the story of the men is a, is a huge component of it. And you have to hear that story, uh, to get to the message. Uh, but again, I wasn't ready to do that. And then once I felt that I was was there, it was actually Sergeant Green's mom, Linda, who I mentioned earlier. And you got to know this lady, man. She is a she is a trip. Uh, I mean, just incredible woman. Uh, just redefined strength and willpower. She lost her only son, you know, Sergeant Green, Ryan Green. Two years later, almost to the date, she lost her husband to cancer. And yet, this woman's outlook on life is just incredible. An example for so many others and she comes to all the Legion 8 events with me and, and speaks to so anyways it was uh after a Legion 8 event she's like hey let's go outside have a beer so we went outside and she just looked at me and she said Jeff write the fucking book <laughs> so I was like all right yes ma'am so yeah I felt like I was in a spot to do it but I was in a conundrum because I felt that if I was going to tell the story I wanted it to be as real and raw as possible and, you know, to talk about those things that not just me that I experienced, what the men experienced and how painful it was. But to do that and to tell it that raw and honest, I knew that I was going to be opening up scars from the worst days of, of many people's lives. Uh, but in talking to them, they were all incredibly supportive of it, all the families. Uh, so, yeah, ultimately went to work on it a few years ago and uh, finally got Legion Rising, Rising uh, published last year. Pretty incredible. Uh, you mentioned Legion Aid a couple of times. Um, you established this nonprofit. Uh, kind of just give its mission statement and what it's about and what it's hoping to accomplish. Yeah, so kind of back, you know, after a few years of doing the CrossFit workouts, we would make up a T-shirt every year, a different design, and we would sell shirts usually just to make money to be able to fly the family members in so they could go to different events. And then once we started people, you know, and I, and I mentioned, you know, the, the non-veteran component of it, you know, those people coming up to me like, man, hey, what you guys are doing has changed my life. And, you know, I want to support you guys. What can we do? And I'm like, well, right now you'd have to write a check to me and, and trust me. <laughs> so we uh, made the decision to go the 501c3 route a couple of years ago. And 
you know, really our, our mission is because it's, you know, eight men, eight families, the impact we've had on, on so many others outside of the military made the decision to not focus on one specific thing. We felt that the greatest power we could have would be as a, as a medium to, to raise funds and then go and support other existing nonprofit organizations that may specialize in a particular thing, i.e. mental health, suicide awareness. And then in some cases, you know, we've reached out and we've helped others uh, in the non-veteran community that have been affected by tragedy and trauma. There's a, a case of a big supporter of ours, uh, you know, just in a tragic accident, his 16-year-old daughter tripped and fell and hit her head on the curb and had to be in the hospital for a week. Uh, there had been some financial troubles with the family for a little bit. And, you know, there's a, a big financial burden put on them. So we, we did an event specially, you know, special for, for the daughter and, and raised a significant amount of money and were able to offset a lot of those medical costs and cover a lot of the, you know, the, the funeral arrangements. So, yeah, you know, we really, uh, you know, it's kind of the last couple of years, I'm, I'm remarried now and have my new wife and I have, had three kids, five and under, so we've been really busy the last couple of years. So I, I haven't scaled Legion Eight as much as I would like to moving forward. Just I felt like my priorities really need to be focused on uh, the young family. Uh, but now that the kids are starting to get a little bit older, we're looking to to get back out and connect with and partner with other, you know, nonprofit organizations and see where we can be a a medium to raise funds to help support these things that are important, not only to myself, but most important to the, to the family members of the eight men that I lost. That's a, I mean, it sounds amazing. I think your, your head is in the right spot with your organization. I think that your heart is in the right spot and, you know, the impact that it's going to be able to make, I think is, is ultimately uh, going to serve the veteran community well. So certainly thank you for doing all that. Uh, outside of uh, Legion 8 and, and everything else, I assume it's just the normal life for you, dad, family kind of stuff and, and regular job. Yeah, I got a regular job. You know, I, you know, was was fortunate. Was was doing well in a corporate career, and you know, kind of I don't know, moving up the ranks if you want to call it that. And this last year, I kind of had this epiphany. You know, it kind of coincided with the the book coming out, and, and felt it was time to start really growing Legion Eight again. I like, man, you know, I've I got this great blessed family. You know, I have four kids now. I got three boys, and finally got the little baby girl, and. You know, I had this book, an opportunity to get out. And, you know, it's, when I say promote the book, I, what I really mean by that is promote the message. And I mean, of course, I want people to buy the book. And like, you don't make this is not about monetary gain. Uh, anybody in, in the book world knows there's not a whole lot of money about that. I want people to, to buy the book because I want them to hear the message. And I, I think that the message of the book is something that will resonate with all walks of life. As it's at the end of the day, man, we're all veterans of life. And I really think this book can have an impact. And heck, if it's one life, great. I've done my job. Uh, but I really think it can make a difference in the life of many. So I say that, like, you know, a year ago, I'm like, man, I'm I'm spending, you know, 75 to 80 percent of my time in these high demanding jobs that are taking up a ton of my time. So, yeah, man, I, I swap jobs and, support, you know, I, I got a, I got a great job. If my, anybody from my company is listening, I'm not discounting it. Uh I guess what I'm saying is I took a, a large step back in responsibility to have the flexibility to focus on these other things that are really what I think ultimately define who I am, you know, as a, as a person. And it, it gives me an opportunity to continue to serve, albeit in a different capacity. So, yeah, you know, normal guy, man, job, four kids, two dogs, uh, you know, 
suburban life, but man, I, I live a very blessed life. I'm a very fortunate man. Amazing to hear. And certainly, again, you know, I, I think that uh, it, there is a certain amount of guts that it takes to uh, want to you know, tell your story. Um, there's a lot of people, like you said, you, you needed a, a beer or a six to get to a point where you're willing to talk. And a lot of people aren't willing to do that. So I hope along with everything else that you've discussed, people are, are taking that from this, that it's okay to come forward and tell your story, uh, unprompted, unsolicited, because there's value in it. Um, there's catharsis in it as we've talked about, but you know, there's also something that somebody else may be able to learn. You, you never know when you can impact somebody else's life just by telling them, who you are and what you've been through. No, man, you, you nailed it. And I, I laugh now, you know, for the guy that wouldn't talk about things for five years. Now I'm the guy that won't shut up about it. And, and the reason why is, is exactly what you said. I, I think that, you know, the, the greatest, you know, gift that we have as humans is the ability to inspire someone else that if they can look at you and say, you know what, if he can do it, if she can do it, then so can I, and you never know, you know, I mean, hopefully someone's listening today and it just what I'm talking about isn't necessarily new. I mean, there's a lot of the same story out there just sometimes through uh, a different voice, a different narrative uh, and how people connect with, with people differently. And I, I didn't ask for this platform in life. Life gave it to me. And now that I have it, uh, what am I going to do with it? And I've chosen to take the route of it's not just a responsibility. It's an, it's an obligation because there are people out there that, had an impact in me to help get me back to being me. And I don't want to ever miss out on an opportunity to uh, offer that same thing to someone else. Perfectly said, brother. And certainly, again, thank you for taking the time to share your story with us. And uh, most importantly, you know, I, I hope you're in a place where you're comfortable with your story and that the things that bothered you for a long time, uh, while they're still with you in some size, way, shape or form, um, they, they don't own the space in your head that they're not paying for, right? It's, it's, they're not living rent free there. So, from that standpoint, again, I, I, I'm grateful that you were so candid uh, and so honest with us about everything that you've been through. And I, I know that somebody will listen to this and, and say, hey, you know, I, I can relate. And I'm glad to hear that somebody else is feeling the same things I am and that we're both not alone. Yeah, no, man. Again, just thank you for the platform. Uh, I love you guys' show. I found it. Uh, you know, I was just looking around for different podcasts a while back and saw you guys. And I listened to the, uh, the Justin Lassick interview. Yeah. Just, yeah, that one was, was awesome. Reached out to him on Instagram after that. I was just uh, really moved by it. And, and, and I love your style and how you let him tell his story and you can relate. So well done with what you guys are doing, man. And keep it up. Uh, we appreciate it. But Jeff Morris, man, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Uh, thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, Send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.